Gas and oil prices are on everyone's minds these days. The man you are about to meet says you have to take a long view on the energy business, and while the dynamics are changing, there are great opportunities for growth. He should know. He is the head of technology for Chevron, and his job is to push forward in finding new resources for energy, as well as improve the performance of the current systems. For Chevron, ever since I left、uh, graduate school at MIT, so 31 years I've been with the company.、Uh, I've been involved in the business of the company and exploration operations.、Uh, I've been involved in managing technology、uh, of all sorts.、Uh, Chevron manages technology in a relatively unique way in our industry, in the sense that the chief technology officer is responsible for all of the technology. Business is what drives technology and energy, but it's always developed in the context of what is the business opportunity, what new energy sources could be brought on if we pursued a given technology strategy, how could we improve the performance of the current system, get more out of what we have with technology, how do we enable this vast supply chain that spans the globe with technology. It's it's fully integrated with our business. That's the way we manage it. And my corporate role is to participate,、uh, not as a technical person, but as one of the executives that helps bring a perspective on technology into business decisions. They've been always been pulled by the advances in computers, whatever they were. This goes way back. Chevron bought the first Cray supercomputer in the industry back when. The only people that had them up to that point in time were people involved in、uh, the national defense programs. The oil and gas business may be different from many industries in the sense that the advances in computing are viewed as essential to the advancing in the application technology that sits around it in a core business, and therefore we dedicate a lot of resources and people to being at the right place on that. So we're involved in all of those kinds of things, high-end technical work, where you get a direct business advantage. In the seismic world, it comes from seeing things before others, with with this acoustic sensing technology,、uh, through reservoir simulation. How do you manage fields better? How do you get that much, just that much more out of a, of an asset compared to your competitors of what would be standardly available? All the way through、uh, many applications that we work with、uh, partners and vendors to、uh, to bring on board. One of the activities we spend a lot of time, since we're the ultimate integrator, basically, we work with a lot of suppliers to help them shape products that makes sense. We add something, the digital equivalent of the Library of Congress, every week in storage. So, how do you manage data? Because data management. Is going to be the issue in our view. Information security, which is part of data management, and the rate of growth is going to be astronomical because there are other technologies that are coming into play that are going to increase that number dramatically. As big as it is now, and as overloaded as people are now, as people continuously deploy sensors into the world, and now we have a wireless world generally. So now. If you want to, for example, put in a facility 
a thousand sensors that are going to be able to detect, for example, the very smallest initial beginnings of a gas leak. Good idea. But now it's becoming practical to do that. Well, what happens when you add millions of these sensors on something? And they're all collecting data and putting it into the system. So you're talking about potentially about getting ready for a world in which data management is going to be the issue. And I think many companies have probably come to that conclusion, that data management's the issue. But we're really looking, because we have so much technical information, whether it's data like seismic or data that's coming off of plants and controllers, you know, a big refinery generates terabytes of data a day. So to get ready for that world, we have to fix the data management, information management paradigm both in processes, practices, and technology, because it's going to grow by a factor of a thousand. And the current system is just going to creak, uh, if not fail, under those kinds of pressures. So that's an example of using the technology to get the organization ready to take on challenges that will become either opportunities or limitations down the line. You have to have a fundamental belief that standards make a difference. And this is something we, this was probably one of my very first challenges when I came to this job more than 10 years ago. We had, did not have standards. We had all kinds of systems, all kinds of inconsistency, which, if nothing else, drove costs. But ultimately was going to make it impossible to take on what, what would be and is today, I would argue, one of the key challenges for any organization dependent on digital information, which is everybody, and that's the whole question about information, privacy of information, cybersecurity, all of these things cannot be done unless you reach a level of standards and people understand how to do that. So, so it's a combination of standards, of a hybrid of both centralized management and distributed business management, and uh, probably my role is to ensure with my counterparts who run the business segments, and we're all in agreement on this, that we need to be able to evolve a system that, that can take, take advantage of the scale we have to make things efficient, to support standards, uh, and to allow connectivity between all the parts of the businesses. Because in specific, businesses evolve. And what was in one case in a particular segment maybe moves and actually finds a home somewhere else. So you've got to be able to seamlessly support the actual flow of the business, not just the way you're organized. Well, Jack is a particular discovery in a geologic trend in the very deep Gulf of Mexico, 200 miles offshore as the water gets deep. But it's a new geologic trend, so not only is the water deep, but the trend is actually buried much deeper than, than in prior trends. Key element in, in any of these things begins actually before, when geologists and, uh, and researchers supporting them piece together or attempt to piece together the geologic history of the Gulf of Mexico and say, well, where else could there be? Would, would the geology favor the formation of uh, reservoirs and the accumulation of oil and gas? From that, it became clear that there would, could well be deeper, a deeper play, as it's called. Okay, the next question is, where 
not just where is it generally, but where is it, can you identify prospects? Prospects are locating a geological formation that you believe has all the right conditions so that when you drill a well you would have a discovery. Prospecting today is led by a combination of geological insights, that is understanding what you think the geology was like, although you never know. I mean, this is a, this is a complex uh, uh, field of forecasting how the Gulf of Mexico developed. But then imaging, using these, these, uh, the seismic tool, create acoustic images of, of the subsurface. That, of course, lets you understand even in greater detail whether your geological hypothesis still makes sense and where to go. The history in the past was you simply couldn't see. The acoustic images just produced, simply didn't produce enough to create viable drilling locations. So that's where you start. And one might ask, why is that? Well, one of it, it has as much as anything else to do not only with our research staff thinking about how you could better implement the physics that lets you construct these pictures. This is, these are like CAT scans for the scale of the Earth, if you want to think of it that way. But secondly, you didn't have, computers were simply not fast enough 10 years ago to allow you to ever create one of these images. It is really a long-term business. Secondly, it is so big and incorporates almost every single dimension you can think about of, in business or technology. There's almost all of that is represented somewhere, whether it's you know, geology or whether it's marketing or whether it's IT. So I think many people have found that it's a very satisfying career because they've almost always had the opportunity to do something new if they want to do it or to go farther and deeper in what they're doing. So there, it, it's the opportunity of choice and the ability, because the company takes a long view, to develop people. Many, many people have ended up ultimately finding their real love and passion in their work that they would have never guessed when they started. But through this process, you are exposed to many things that you have never seen. And the history shows, in, in my experience, that's how people find these things. So the, the company supports that and, develop, and is willing to develop people. And I think that it's probably one of the things that uh, growing up in the company it's one of the things I think there's been a lot of effort made over time for people to learn that change is part of the business and that management will endeavor significantly to ensure that the company's going in the right direction on the right tracks and communicate why we're doing it and to enable all the way down through the organization enable people to make that change. Does that mean that change is easy? No. Change sometimes can be extremely difficult. Go back to the practical question. We started with small scale, but nonetheless em emblematic standards. When we first decided to propagate IT standards across the globe, most people would agree that in the abstract that standards are great, and especially as long as they were yours. And, but the idea about say, that, that that isn't going to work because this is the way the world's going. We see these things coming. We have to go that way, and we need you to contribute by us all getting on the same boat. But I think the ability to describe that future in, in some set of realism. Secondly, of course, is the ability for people to build confidence in the people you're trying to lead 
that uh, a confident realism. Change is never easy and for certain as you go down a road over a multi-year change you are going to run into things you didn't think of. There are going to be adjustments. So being honest about recognizing adjustments but then having the confidence that you can make the changes to persevere down that road even though you run into some potholes and other kinds of things. Uh, so I think understanding where you're going, again, why you're, why you're doing it, how you're going to get there, and how you're going to overcome the inevitable obstacles that are going to appear. And, can, and to do that, I think you need uh, a change artist needs to be able to inspire people to want to do it. Most people are apprehensive about change. That's not a criticism. That's just normal. But being able to dis continuous describe that future, uh, I think, is an essential part of it. I think the opportunity areas for growth in the company come in a number of areas. We, we've been growing uh, uh, our business, of course, in the, in the Caspian Sea area, Kazakhstan. That's a major natural resource area for oil and gas, and it's... It's really began its development in earnest um, a few years ago, and it's coming up the curve. We expect that to continue. On the exploration front, uh, as I say, we continue to push in ever deeper waters uh, and, and really are approaching at what I would call as a technology threshold. You know, today we still operate from the surface. In some cases the water is two miles deep before you get to the subsurface, and then it's miles below that. At some point, even beginning already today, but I think ultimately you're going to have to drive to put more and more things on the seafloor because the idea of managing and lifting things from the surface that far away uh, becomes impractical. So I think you're going to see an advancement in robotics and automation, a new generation of, of technologies that allow you to operate uh, oil and gas production on the seafloor autonomously. As you move into the Arctic, and, and which is which many view as a geologically favorable province. Same thing, uh, increasing physical challenges. And then what I would call challenged resources. Uh, I mentioned the oil shales. You know where they are. Uh, the whole issue is can you, can you change the way in which you actually extract this resource, which, which means going after... Uh, different capabilities, uh, employing perhaps different physics and other kinds of things to solve the problem. So there are lots of big opportunities. Almost every single one of them today has both major business or economic challenges, but all have major technological challenges as well. I think the advantage we have is that uh, if you think where we operate, one, we have operated in many places for many, many years. I mean, literally decades, whole generations. So, so, so the company's footprint, whether it's a marketing office or a pipeline or an oil field, we've been there on the ground for a very long time. And so when employees come to work for the company, uh, pretty early on, they learn about health, environment, safety, training, Information technology is just another aspect of it. So I think if you are starting anew and you've never had a footprint somewhere, 
yeah, you're going to have many, many challenges. But I think where we have operating uh, facilities, in many cases, these are facilities that have been established and have lots of people, like in Indonesia, have lots of people. The information system there looks exactly like the one that it would here. Uh, in fact, deliberately so. How do you bring up the skills of the global international workforce? How do you find su and develop support partners? You know, we don't do everything ourselves by any means. How do you develop and nurture support partners that can provide information support uh, around the clock, wherever you are? And that's, I think, part of this overall expansion. Uh, I think it's primarily a cultural issue. In some cases, it's a political issue because of the different environments allow you to, to do certain things with information. But uh, it's part of a, it's, I guess it's something that um, it's complex and it, you need to continue to advance and work on it constantly. I think cybersecurity is on everybody's minds these days. All the physical aspects of our business, all the things that find molecules in the ground, produce them, move them, turn them into molecules people want to buy, this huge supply chain, everything in that chain is run by digital controllers and automation. So digital, the digital infrastructure extends well into every device, every valve, controller. Just imagine a super tanker, how many digital devices do you think is on, are on it? Thousands. So the next question you might ask is, well, what's looking after those? Most digital devices that control physical things, sensors and control systems, were not built for cybersecurity. So we have undertaken a project beginning a few years ago with the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, of which energy infrastructure is one of the critical infrastructures identified by Homeland Security, uh, the head of our information protection program and uh, myself went and visited Homeland Security just when they were starting up. There were boxes in the hallways. And, but we sat down with the head of technology and we said, this is a real issue. Okay. Actually, some of it stemmed from what we learned with Y2K, when we had to go out and actually find all these controllers that everybody was worried about. So one, we could build off that. And uh, we said, we need to put together a program between industry and Homeland Security and the, uh, and the technology suppliers that could address this problem. And uh, they agreed. And so we've actually formed an industry group, which we've been leading for several years, to put together and develop technology to defend uh, operating infrastructures like processing units for pipelines, refineries, and oil fields. So that's a different approach to cybersecurity. It's the cybersecurity attached to automation and control systems, not just the cybersecurity that has to do with protecting your uh, traditional desktop infrastructure. In order to get going, we had a vision and we communicated it to the industry, but I think people were sort of trying to decide what to do. So we said, we'll go ahead. We'll do it first. And so the Homeland Security, Sandia National Labs, ourselves and several other smaller organizations. We did a, we did a, uh, a project, was very successful. This time out, with the success of that project, round two, now we've had a whole number of companies sign up, so I think we are gonna be able to go forward on an, on an industry basis, which will help a lot in terms of getting the leverage. But that's an example of something where, uh, uh, really the way we look at technology. Here's a clear business requirement. 
secure control of the systems that run your plants and oil fields, pipelines and ships. The second is there's nothing to do it. There is no, there is no supplier. There are, of course, uh, uh, cybersecurity companies that supply antivirus software, so on and so forth. They're not built for that system at all, and certainly not at that scale. And so we said, well, that's, we, need to, we need to push the technology forward. Do we have all the knowledge to do this? But no, by no means. We do understand the problem, and we understood some technical issues around it. But we went to people who had, for example, a test bed for cybersecurity of automation and control systems existed at the Sandia National Lab. Okay, well, that sounds good. We would never be able to create that on our own. So it's kind of the model of how we do it. We put all the partnerships together to address the problem and create a new technical platform to do so. So that's a, it's a perfect example. We contribute some of that element ourselves, but in many cases it's really a bringing together uh, a wide array of, of technical talent and solutions and integrating them into something that can address our problems. We've added some new customers in our business as Chevron as a whole over the last few years. Uh, I think, uh, of course, the traditional customers uh, include uh, on the natural resource business, one would argue that uh, countries and government partners. I mean, you're doing for them, helping them develop their natural resource. I view that as a pretty fundamental customer. Uh, obviously, uh, delivering products that people use, most notably comes to mind as fuel. So we delivering fuel. Uh, a new business that we have been growing over the last few years is what we call an energy solutions or energy services business. We have a particular subsidiary that actually uh, goes to, uh, in this case, institutional customers, which would be schools, post office, uh, things like that, and actually redesigns and re-implements their whole energy systems to save them energy and at the same time install renewable power like solar uh, fuel cells and things like that. So this, this business about how you actually use uh, technology in a service that allows institutions to significantly improve their energy efficiency, we view, you know, that's kind of a new service too. Certainly small on the overall scale of Chevron, but but a fair-sized business uh, for most companies. One of the things I felt needed to be done in IT that had been, in fact, been done in the other segments was that the leaders needed to come from the business. That balance, to the extent that you can get it, between business and technology, I think it's essential in order to be able to handle the, this interface because it's, the, it's how well that interface between technology and the businesses and the businesses today as well as business in the future, how well that interface is managed is, is probably decisive in how effective technology is. So I don't think you can do it anymore. In, the, in an integrated, connected future, I don't think you can do it anymore without having management that have, in effect, have, a, have, have a significant managerial experience in both the business as well as technology. I don't think that one-dimensional communication works. I think if it's a tough issue, if it's a really important issue, there's, there's no match for sitting down with someone because of the, just the human sensing and the fact that uh, if I have traveled to visit someone, they say, oh, 
he really cares. He's here. Email, of course, people have email. That's what they do. But, uh, but I think voice and uh, telephone communication is important as well. They all have, they're all part of the system, but I, I don't think you can live without them. I think that the personal contact in the end still, uh, whether it's electronic or in person, I think it's hard to beat uh, because uh, most things that you really need to deal with uh, are complex. And the ability to interact is the way humans have learned to interact. What do I do when I'm commuting? I think it depends on whether you're going in the morning or coming back in the evening. I think they're significantly different. Uh, but in the morning, um, I drink my coffee and think about what I'm going to do that day. What are the two or three critical things that I, I've got to get done? And these are usually some interaction. And what am I going to say? And I just let my mind work on that. I don't listen to the radio. I don't listen to an iPod. I usually use that time. Reverse commute on the, on the coming back in the evening, uh, that's when I may listen to the radio, catch up on the news, and uh, think about things. But I, I view travel time as think time. I, in fact, I, uh, air, airplanes. Uh, I, don't, I don't whip out the laptop and pound away on it. I have plenty of time in front of uh, a... Um, a flat panel as it is, uh, I view the time on airplanes to catch up on some reading, sleep, think. Because one of the nice things about an airplane is you don't actually have to, most of the time, interact with anyone. So you can really concentrate. To get one or two, I try to keep in, I don't know, my mental backpack, two or three complicated, big complicated issues. They could either be a business development idea uh, could be a major political effect that's going to affect uh, the company or something. And I work on those. So I always have them along. I can take them out on an airplane when you've got a couple of hours and can really concentrate on an issue, really take it apart, put it back together, do things like that. That's something you can't do during the day uh, because there's many other people that need access. And there has never been a time of opportunity like this. There's so many interesting things. And, and I've gotten to meet so many interesting people. It's, it's hard not to be energized about um, all the things and, uh, to do. Uh, I never get up and not think of how great, how great is this.